turn your Bibles to the uh, Epistle of Paul to the Galatians in your New Testament. be good as long as I don't pull the plug out. It's good to see you all again. Uh, I've been asked this morning to go through Galatians um, chapter 3. As I was studying for this message, uh, I don't know what you feel like when you study to just get into a study or present at a Bible study or even preach on a topic or lead a Sunday school class. But Galatians chapter 3 is a powerful chapter. And you start getting into Galatians 3, it's in the middle of the book. So you kind of need to know what's going on in the book. But it goes back and reaches into the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic law, first century culture, and it's almost a whole Bible book. I mean, Paul's dealing with the gospel and how to argue for the gospel and people disagreeing over the gospel. So um, you step into deep waters when you step into Galatians chapter 3. And I'll try to share some of that. Also, uh, there's, been, there's been some pretty big uh, debates over, uh, maybe since the 1990s uh, in the academic world over um, who Paul was really responding to. And that's an interesting conversation. So uh, we'll get into as much as we can get into. And for those of you that are visual learners, I have as many slides as you can handle this morning. So that's a good thing as well. Uh, Galatians chapter 3, and I'm going to read some this morning with you. Uh, let's read from uh, Galatians 2, uh, 17 for context. Galatians 2, 17 for context. I'm reading from the ESV this morning. Uh, Paul writes, But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? God forbid, certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, this is going to be the big theme in this chapter, actually throughout much of the epistle, then Christ died for no purpose. And Paul says this, some strong language here, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? What's happened, guys? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you a few questions. I'm just going to ask you some rhetorical questions. Let me ask you a few things, right? I would only ask you this, says Paul. Did you receive the Spirit, or uh, did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Look at the either or that he sets up here, right? By the works of the law or by the hearing of faith. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now perfected by the flesh? That's the second question. Third question, did you suffer so many things in vain, right? You suffered for the gospel, you know, leaving the works of the law, and, and, and now was that sort of pointless and useless? Did you suffer all that in vain? Here's another question. He who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do that by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? And then he gives an answer to all four of these questions. This is the way that all this happened. 
just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, right? Four rhetorical questions. You kind of know what the answer is supposed to be and he gives you the answer. Know then, verse 7, that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. That's a fascinating statement. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, and you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with the man of faith, that is, that is Abraham. Read a little bit more here and then we'll pray. For, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. That's pretty serious. For it is written, or just as it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it's evident, it's obvious that no one is justified before God or no one is justified before God by the law for the righteous shall live by faith. He's quoting from Habakkuk 2. But the law doesn't operate on that principle, right? That's one principle. People are justified by, by faith. The law doesn't operate on that principle. The law is not of faith. Rather, it's on this principle. The one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Right? Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. So that, verse 14, in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. I'm going to stop here, kind of halfway through the chapter. There is so much content in this chapter. We're going to try to get through as much of it as we can. There's so much. Let's just bow our heads and pray, and then we'll, uh, we'll, we'll get our bearings and we'll work through chapter 3. Father, we ask that you would help us to enjoy the Scriptures, to learn from the Scriptures, to see Christ in the Scriptures, and in seeing him to see you. Uh, help us to understand the truth uh, of, of righteousness by faith alone in Christ alone. And we ask, Lord, that if there are um, unique applications that you would have us to sort of take this and apply them to in our lives, or that you, you would help us to sort of see those things. Uh, it's not always immediately apparent how uh, the, the Scripture works itself out in each of our own individual stories, Lord. So I ask that by your Spirit, Lord, you would um, pick out the verses that we cross over this morning and, and lodge them in hearts and minds here uh, in the listeners, Lord, or, or people who listen online. We pray these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our righteousness. Amen. Okay. Um, Paul's epistle to the Galatians, and we're looking... Uh, I'm going to give you a little introduction uh, just a little bit of a review to sort of what was going on in Galatians, who were we talking to, what the problem was, and then get into chapter 3. Um, and, and Paul starts out by saying, oh, foolish Galatians. I got a little bit of artwork here. Some of you will appreciate that. That will annoy some of you. I'm sorry. Right? Oh, foolish Galatians. Who were the Galatians? Right? You're reading this book to the Galatians. Who were the Galatians? Um, this is a painting of Paul and Barnabas in Lystra. Do you remember what happened in Lystra? Lystra is in the area that Paul was probably writing to when he talks about the Galatians, right? They're preaching, uh, there's a miracle, and they, they're, they're going to sort of worship these guys like they're gods. And, uh, and Paul and Barnabas um, stopped them. Um, who were the Galatians? Okay, the Galatians were probably people who lived in the southern area of Turkey. This is sort of kind of a map of Turkey, and the Galatians were uh, in these cities here, Lystra, um, Derby, Lycaonia, and this area. There's kind of a, a long debate about whether Paul was writing to people up here in the northern part of Galatia or down in the southern part of Galatia. Um, you, 
you've probably heard a word that sounds like Galatia. That's the word gall, right? Where's gall? Gaul's, Gaul's way over here, um, you know, by Spain, right? And, and at some point, people came over, Celts or Gauls came over, and they settled, and they had a kingdom here. And eventually, when the Romans took power, the Romans renamed what was ethnic Galatia, hint, hint, northern Galatia, ethnic Galatia, they, named, they, they sort of gave that name to a political province. Uh, why does that matter? Well, it helps us figure out when Paul wrote this letter. Um, so, uh, Paul had, a, on his first missionary journey, Paul went through and he, he actually preached the gospel and some local churches were planted. And this is probably when the Galatians, who he's writing to, uh, first came to Christ, his first missionary journey, okay? Um, and if any of you, by the way, if any of you wants a copy of these slides, because you like something in them, just ask me and I'll give you a copy. Uh, we won't obviously go through these, but uh, these are all the cities that, that, that Paul went through. Look at that. That's some serious work, right? Traveling, preaching the gospel, uh, bearing witness to Christ. Um, so who were the Paul's recipients, right? One idea is that Paul was writing to ethnic Galatians, people that were sort of descendant from these, uh, these Gauls that had moved in. And this was an old view that, that went back into the early history of the church. Or Paul was maybe writing to people who were in the south, right, southern central Turkey, and um, maybe sort of a political province. And it's probably... The latter. Here, this is a nice little slide here. This is sort of the, the ethnic kingdom and then um, the political kingdom that the Romans had, had named. All right. Um, when did Paul write this? He probably wrote this epistle at the end of his um, first missionary journey, somewhere after his first missionary journey. And you guys know what happened in Acts 15, right? There was the Jerusalem Council. And, and it had to do with a lot of the same kind of stuff that's in Galatians, right? There were people that were trying to get the Christians to follow the law of Moses. And they came down to Jerusalem and they debated this and they discussed it and they agreed that this wasn't what the Holy Spirit was leading them to do. And here's what's interesting. As you guys have been studying Galatians, does Paul ever mention, oh, Galatians, we just went down to the apostles and had a big discussion on this and we all agreed that this was not the way that you should follow Christ. He never mentions the council in Acts chapter 15. So this probably happened before the council of Jerusalem. He probably wrote it just before he went to the Council of Jerusalem. And that helps you as you study your Bible. As you're thinking about Galatians or working through Galatians, you could just kind of tell yourself, Paul probably wrote this just before Acts 15. That helped kind of get you right, right in the book of Acts as you're reading through Acts. Um, all right, so let's just kind of jump on ahead to, they're just maps of Paul's different missionary journeys. And if you want the copy of the slides, you can, you can have those. All right, so who, what was the occasion of the letter, right? A lot of the, the letters in the New Testament were written because people were facing problems, right? The apostles are writing to deal with real issues. So what was the problem here? Let's just look at a few scriptures in Galatians. I've written up here, every chapter hints at the presence of a group, right, that began to pressure these new believers to follow the Mosaic law. Even though they become followers of Christ, you guys need to keep the law now. Right? They needed to follow the law for righteousness, and there's a little hint that they wanted to avoid persecution. Okay, let's take a look at some of these verses. Chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. We're just getting our bearings real quick. Chapter 1, look at verses 6 and 7. Paul writes, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. So what does that so quickly phrase tell you? It hasn't been a long time since the local church was planted that this happened, Okay. This is pretty recent events, and so he, he dashes off this letter. 
verse number seven, um, there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So whatever goes on, something in Paul's mind tells him that this, is, this has to do with the gospel. And, and I'll, I'll tell you why I say that uh, later. Look at chapter two, right? There's something in each chapter that gives you a hint. And by the way, when you study your Bible, here's a little you know, piece of advice for Bible study methods. When you study your Bible, look for these kinds of verses. Why was this epistle written? Well, look for all the clues that talk about they're saying such and such. They're doing such and such. I don't want you to respond to the group this way, right? That gives you some clues, no matter what kind of debates go on around the Bible, of what was going on and why, why the apostle wrote. Uh, uh, Galatians 2, look at verse number, look, verse number 4. Because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery... To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the gospel might be preserved for you. Okay? There are people that are coming in. They're spying. They're looking at this Christian community and the way they have freedom and liberty in Christ, and they're trying to pressure them. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. We've already read this. O foolish Galatians! Who has bewitched you? Somebody's confused you. Somebody's pulled the wool over your eyes. Somebody's got you to sort of turn completely around and go the other way. It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. You guys heard the gospel. I mean, it was so clear. It was like Jesus was crucified right there in front of you. That's some poetic language. And now you're going in a completely different direction. What happened? Can you imagine that? I mean, can you imagine you, you um, well, I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, in, in the assembly that I grew up at, I'm trying to remember this off the top of my head, there was a, a, young, uh, a young man that came to the assembly. Uh, he's kind of a troubled life, troubled marriage. Uh, and, and his three kids came. And they grew up in the uh, sunny school. And, you know, you kind of see kids grow through uh, middle school and high school. And you don't always know sort of where they're at. And, and when people sort of hit that high school, young adult age, it's a unique time in life because you'll kind of see where they'll go. They've got a little bit of freedom, a little bit of independence. And sometimes they just they go somewhere else. Right? And, and, and so his son, uh, you know, is raised, kind of raised in the assembly as, as more of a visitor and coming and going, all of a sudden sort of connected with some Mormon families. And before long, he, he joined a Mormon church. And you kind of, I remember my dad talking about interacting with him, sort of going through the gospel, going through, something had gotten a hold of his heart. And here's a suggestion for you. I mean, we talk about uh, evangelism, and, and, and this is a college town, and many of you are at that age. I want you to remember that people believe things for more than just the intellectual reasons. Okay. This is why when you disagree with people or you debate with people, you could do all kinds of things in them. It's like it bounces off them because there's almost like a head and a heart component to belief. This, this phrase might help you to see what I'm getting at. Oftentimes I've said that the, that the head looks for ways to justify what the heart desires. Right? There are things that people are struggling with or that they want or that they're bothered by or that they're troubled by or, or that they don't like about this person and, and, and around that is often sort of all the doctrine and the proofs and things like that. And so when you're interacting with somebody, you might want to stop and say, you know, what's really going on here emotionally? 
And this, this young man came from a troubled family, and he went and he, and he saw these, just, these beautiful Mormon families. And I think he was drawn by that, and their friendship, and they welcomed him in. I mean, there were, there were great families at the, the assembly where he was at, but something bewitched him, right? Something got him. And it was like the blinders went down, and there was no interacting. And Paul's writing. You can hear that in his voice. Who got to you? Who bewitched you? What's going on? I don't know if you've had a conversation like that, but Paul was having one of those conversations. Look at chapter 4, verse number 17. Galatians chapter 4, verse 17. Verse 16, for context, have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you might make much of them, right? There's, there's a group here who wants to claim the attention of the assembly. They want to see the assembly following the law of Moses, be able to point to that, right? There's something going on here. There's a group here. Look at chapter 5, verse number 7. All we're doing is we're just reading through clues of the letter that give us a little bit of a a picture into kind of what was going on and why Paul wrote this epistle. Galatians chapter 5, verse number 7. You were running well. That's a metaphor, illustration of the Christian life, a journey or running, a track, race, something like that. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. You didn't get this from Christ who calls you to himself. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. That's an Old Testament illustration coming out of the Exodus, right? A little bit of leaven spreads, it begins to grow. When you get certain powerful ideas into your mind, they will work themselves out. Why? Because there's two aspects to truth. Anybody in here that's done a little bit of philosophy knows that there are two theories of truth. One of them is called the correspondence theory of truth. If what I believe corresponds to what's out there in the world, then what I believe is true, right? If I believe that I'm at a bus stop right now, my beliefs aren't corresponding to what's out there in the world. So my beliefs have, they're, they're false beliefs. Uh, if I believe I'm standing in front of a congregation who's sitting down looking at me, um, then the belief that I have in my head is a true belief. It's correspondence. But there's another, there's another theory of truth called coherence. Things are true when sort of they all connect in your mind systematically, right? Well, Something about this verse connects with that in Galatians chapter 5. Um, who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion comes not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Part of the problem is, is that once you begin to believe something, <clears throat> it works itself out into this system, this web of beliefs. This is why it's really important to get your doctrine right. Because your worldview is all connected. And so once you start to change what you believe about who Christ is or change, I don't know what I'm pretending to pull on here. Maybe it's a web. I, I think I'm pulling on a piece of a web. Once you begin to change, um, you know, what your concept of humanity is or what sin is or um, who God is, everything else in the system has to kind of adjust to get with it. And so when you say a little leaven leavens the whole lump, sure, it could mean that I could spread through a church, right? A belief system could spread through a church, but it also can spread through your whole noetic mental structure. And so um, you've got to watch what you believe, right? Uh, you've got to watch systems. I think one of the things that I take away from Galatians chapter 3 is Paul almost saying, be careful what system you step into. Be careful what intellectual worldview you plug yourself into because it's going to work itself out all through your life. Okay, so um, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view 
but the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. So apparently Paul doesn't know exactly who this person is, right? And here's this little theme, verse 11. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I being persecuted? So something going on here has to do with persecution. Apparently, once Paul and his followers stopped adhering to circumcision and probably the wider Jewish cultural religious system, they started getting persecuted. And so Paul's like, I'm still being persecuted. Clearly, I'm teaching something that right, doesn't support this system. So that's in the background. Some persecution is in the background. Turn to chapter tw- 6, verses 12 and 13. By the, by the way, we'll read from verse 11. Uh, there's, a, there's a beautiful phrase here. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Oftentimes in um, the, 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 the early Roman world, you would have someone that would write letters for you. It's called an amanuensis, like, like a secretary. Uh, and, and then uh, I'm told that someone like Paul would take up and sign the end of it or would uh, you know, write the end of it. And this might be where in the letter, if you had the original manuscript, that maybe the font actually changed a little bit. Not the font, you know, but the penmanship because Paul had picked up the stylus and, and, and had added his name to the, the epistle that Amenuensis had written. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make me, uh, to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Um, so there's an, a desire to avoid persecution, okay? It's a little, bit of, a little bit of background. Paul planned an assembly, a couple assemblies before the Jerusalem council. Somebody came in pretty quick. They're trying to push the Christians to follow certain Jewish ritual laws for righteousness. And it's bad enough, it's serious enough, it's leaven, leaven-esque enough, it's risky enough that Paul feels he has to write a letter and say, you don't realize what you did, but you just stepped on a completely different bus, and it's going in a completely different direction. You just stepped into a system that completely uh, makes the, the righteousness of Christ useless. You're in a real problem. You've got to do something quick. That's the occasion of the letter. Um, I don't know about you, but when I see outlines that other people write, I just sort of glaze over. And <laughs> I'm like, I, you know, I don't know what to do with that. Uh, I, I think outlines are only helpful if you make them because then your sort of brain works through it, but uh, I'm going to subject you to an outline. Anyways, um, you've got, basically, we're going to look today at um, chapter 3, but what happened in chapter 1 and 2? Basically, Paul defends his own apostleship. You can imagine somebody saying, now look, this Paul guy, I don't know where he got his message from, but if you read your Old Testament, it's all about the law. Who do we want to go with, the Bible or Paul? Something like that, right? They're, they're attacking him. And he defends his gospel. He defends his message. He's like, where did I get my message from? I didn't get it from somebody on the street. I got it from the, the, the Lord. Oh, and by the way, I went to Jerusalem, and I met with a couple of the apostles. And nobody in Jerusalem was like, we don't like what you're preaching, Paul. We want you to change it. They gave me the right hand of fellowship. So the apostles, in my own experience, back up the message that I'm preaching as from the Lord. Right? So, so, so it doesn't have anything to do with me. My gospel and the source of the gospel is legit. And in chapter 3, he's going to get into the theology, right? So he defends the source of his gospel message, 
in his own life in chapter 2, and now in chapter 3, he's going to get into the nitty-gritty of um, the message itself. And so what we're going to look at in our messages are a couple arguments, right? He's going to defend his gospel message. One of them is uh, the experience of the Christians themselves. Hey, stuff happened to you. Look at what happened to you. That backs up, you know, what, what I originally preached. Uh, some arguments from the Scripture. He's going to talk about uh, wills, human covenants, right? All kinds of stuff is evidence for um, the truth of the gospel. Uh, okay, for those of you that like graphics, there, here you go. Uh, we'll talk about uh, four, four main things that Paul's going to argue, okay? So we'll get into this next. Uh, how previous experiences of the believers in that assembly showed that Paul's gospel was true and what they were being challenged with was false. Um, and then we'll talk about how even Abraham, his life backs up the message that Paul preached. And then some of the dangerous consequences of trying to step back to the law and then um, the way covenants back up Paul's message, okay? So let's, let's look at these four arguments. Are you ready? Let's look at these four arguments. Open your Bible again. If you closed it, go back to Galatians chapter 3. We've talked about the background. We've talked about when he wrote the epistle. Now we're in chapter 3 here. All right, what's the first argument that Paul's going to use? Okay, what is he arguing? He's arguing against, and this is what you could take home with you into your work week. He's arguing against people who have come into the assembly and gotten the Christians to think that just because they trusted Jesus as their Savior, to use contemporary language, they still need to be circumcised, they still need to follow the law, they still need to follow certain food restrictions. It's good that you trusted Jesus, but you need, to, you, you need to follow the law of Moses to continue being legit or to continue getting righteousness or to mark yourselves off. That's what, that's what part of the big debate about this is, is what purpose did these things serve? That's who he's arguing against. Here's his first argument, okay? You don't get righteousness by following the law of Moses, and your own experiences show you that. And he's going to ask these rhetorical questions. Here are the four rhetorical questions that I read when we started out. How did you receive the Holy Spirit, guys? Think back to when you first trusted Christ. This is going to be a big theme. A lot of times when people preach about Galatians, I don't know if they emphasize the, 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 the Spirit. This is a huge, the Holy Spirit is a huge theme in Galatians. And I'll show you why when we get a little farther along. How did you receive the Holy Spirit? Okay. You didn't get it by keeping the law. Uh, how is God maturing you? How have you been growing? The works that God's doing among you, is, is, that's by the, the Spirit. Uh, didn't you guys get persecuted? <laughs> didn't you guys get persecuted for following the, the message that, that I preached to you? I mean, that, that was a waste. If now you're going back the other way, what did you suffer for? It's like, I, I think I have this later in the notes, it's like you know, people who fight the Revolutionary War, and after the war's over, and you know, the revolution is won here, and the you know, in the, the, the 1700s, then they sail back to Great Britain. Like, well, what did you fight for? What was that for? All those principles you claim to stand for. And on what basis did God perform miracles among you? Right? But you guys saw some things happen. Were those by the law or by the power of the Spirit? These are four, the, the answer is obviously, it's sort of rhetorical. No, it's not by the law, it's by the power of the Spirit and by faith. Um, there's a little quote from Ironside. Some of you appreciate Ironside. It is quite possible for one to have been truly converted and to have begun with a clear, definite knowledge of the saving grace of the Lord Jesus. And then because of failure to follow and study the word, and I would also add, he adds, and to pray over it, and I also also add, maybe not follow some good teaching, 
uh, to come under the influence of some false system, some unscriptural line of teaching. And so often when people do come under some such influence, you find it's almost impossible to deliver them. They seem to be under a spell, which is kind of what we were talking about. Um, they were bewitched. Uh, I might mention a little bit of application on, on falling under the spell o- online. There's a big movement called the Hebrew Roots Movement that's sort of spreading through people today online. They're sort of trying to return back to Hebrew roots and follow the law again today and take Jewish names and observe certain things. I mean, it's, in, it's 2019, 2020, and this kind of thing is still happening uh, because people are exposed to all kinds of information on, on, on the Internet. Um, okay, so how did you receive the Holy Spirit? All right, this is the first thing that he asks them. How did you receive the Holy Spirit? Okay. This was a big Old Testament promise, and it was a sign of the Messianic age. Right? The answer to this question should put an end to the entire debate. Galatians chapter 3, verse number 5. Does he who supply the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do that by the works of the law or by faith? Right? They didn't get the Holy Spirit by keeping the law, but by hearing and believing the gospel, the message of Christ. Uh, there's a number of verses that talk about how the Spirit baptizes us into Christ. If a person, Romans 8 9 says, if a person doesn't have the Holy Spirit, he doesn't belong to Christ. This is a very important verse. You might want to underline it in your Bible someday because it, it links having the Holy Spirit and having salvation. Whatever happened in the past, right, the Holy Spirit in the past didn't indwell people. Remember in John chapter 14, Jesus says to the disciples, the Spirit is with you, but will be what? In you. Major shift happens when Christ goes to heaven. The, the paraclete comes after Christ's ascension. The Holy Spirit is to the whole church around the globe, millions and millions or billions of people at one time, what Jesus was physically to a little group of disciples in one geographic location. Imagine if the gospel spreads around the whole world and there's no spirit, right? The whole world can't go to Jerusalem and try to be with Jesus. You see the scenes, people going to Mecca, they're, they're circling around the Kaaba, millions of people. Sometimes there's, people get trampled. It, it just doesn't work having that many people trying to get to one spot. The spirit is to the entire church, millions of people, what Christ was to disciples. And, it, and this, is a, this is maybe an argument for the equality of persons in the Trinity. Jesus says, it's good if I go to the Father, because if I go to the Father, the Spirit will come. Well, he wouldn't say that if the Spirit was somehow you know, insufficient for the life of the believer. If the Spirit can be to the believer all that Christ is to the, to the believer, the, the, the persons are equal. I've never seen anybody mount an argument for the, the, the personhood of the Spirit from his efficacy in your life, but that would be an interesting place to do it from. Right? You receive the, the, the Spirit um, not by the works of the law. And Paul's assuming his reader's salvation. Right? Again, for the, the, the graphically oriented people, there are some beautiful um, um, uh, sort of metaphors used for the Spirit in Scripture. Right? One of them is that, that, that the Spirit is seen descending upon Jesus like a dove at his baptism. Uh, the Spirit is described as a wind, right? Jesus is teaching Nicodemus. You, you, know, you, you can see the effects of the Spirit. You can see the power of the Spirit. Right? Um, like, like, like a spring of water. Jesus is at one of the Jewish feasts, and he says he's referring to um, springs of living water coming up out of a, out of a, a person, um, and then as tongues of fire on the day of Pentecost. So the, the, these pictures of the Spirit. And why am I bringing up the Spirit here? Because you read this verse, and you're just like, oh, they didn't receive the Spirit by the law. They received it by faith. Great, we'll move on. I want you to catch how big of a deal the appearance of the Spirit the coming of the Spirit upon the global church 
is in the whole flow of Bible doctrine. Here's the big idea. The coming of the Spirit, the age of the Spirit, so to speak, the time when God's Spirit would come upon all people, not just prophets, priests, and kings, all people, was a big promise associated with the coming Messianic age. When you hear the prophets in the Old Testament preach, they, you, you know your story, right? You know your kind of, you know, what happens at the end of the Old Testament, right? The nation of Israel, is, they go into captivity, they're in sin. What do the prophets come? They preach judgment. Hey, you guys weren't faithful to the covenant. All those things that you guys said, may these curses be upon us, they happen. You weren't faithful to the covenant, but God's merciful. And a day is coming when he will restore, right? The glory will come back to the temple. The king will come back to Israel. Israel will be restored. It'll be brought back. And in those promises, there's all of this talk about the spirit, the spirit, the spirit will come. There are some beautiful passages. This is a big, 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 excuse me, big deal. The Spirit coming. And, and basically, Paul's like, you stepped into a whole new age. You went from the age of the law, you know, under the law of Moses, to the foretaste of the age to come, right? There's this age and the age to come. You stepped into that, and now you want to go backwards and go to the law of Moses? That doesn't make any sense at all. Let's just, let's just enjoy a few of these beautiful verses uh, together. Turn uh, turn back with me to Isaiah. Uh, I made a lot of slides, but if I was really good, I would, I would have just put verses up here so we could click through them really quick. Uh, Isaiah chapter 11. I don't know what happens to you when you start to read a list of verses that have a sort of a, a theme to them, but it, it, to me, it's just kind of like a crescendo in an orchestra. It sort of builds and builds, and you feel like you're really getting something. Um, we obviously can't go through all of these, but Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11. Look what it says here. There shall, verse number one, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Who's Jesse? Jesse's King David's father. So it's this person's coming from King David. And a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And the spirit of Yahweh, or the spirit of the Lord, shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Okay, so the spirit is going to be associated with this future messianic king. Flip over to chapter 32. Flip over to chapter 32. We're doing a little biblical theology. What's biblical theology? It's when you look at what all, you know, sections of the scripture say about a theme. Systematic theology is when you look at what all the Bible and maybe science and experience and church history, everything says about a theme. Uh, Isaiah chapter 32, verse number 15. Verse number 14, for the place is forsaken, the populous city deserted, and the hill and the watchtower will become dense forever, a joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks, until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. Right? Your your, your land's going to be like a wilderness until the Spirit comes and restores everything. Isaiah chapter 44. And this is only a sampling. If If you're trying to figure out, I don't know, maybe I want to study something, some new Bible study, uh, go look up the promises of the Spirit in the, 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 uh, the, the prophets. Isaiah chapter 44, verse number 1. But now hear, uh, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says Yahweh, who made you, uh, who formed you from the womb, uh, and will help you. But by the way, some of you might be stumbled why I'm saying Yahweh when I see when I'm when your Bible says Lord. When you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that's the divine name of the Lord in the, the in, in the text. Your English translators have taken and put in the same English word 
that you would see, for example, when you read in Hebrew Adonai. That's when you see capital L and the rest are lowercase ord. That's a different Hebrew word behind that, right? That's Adonai. This is the yod Hey vav Hey, the Tetragrammaton, the, the name of the Lord that Jews won't pronounce. That's what you see here when you see L-O-R-D. We're not sure how it's pronounced. Some people used to pronounce it Jehovah. It's probably not pronounced like that. Apology to Jehovah's Witnesses. They've got a mispronunciation in their entire name. But um, it's probably pronounced something like Yahweh, right? So um, it's the name of the Lord. And um, verse 2, thus says the Lord of Yahweh who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen, for I will pour water on a thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They will spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call upon the name of Jacob, and another will write on his hand, the Lord's, and, the na- and, uh, and name himself by the name of Israel. These are beautiful passages. Uh, look to Jeremiah chapter 31. This is one of the most important passages in the Old Testament. This is, this is a promise of the new covenant. Clearly, we're going to stop this morning talking about um, the Spirit. Jeremiah chapter 31. If you're new to studying the Bible, if you're just growing in the Lord, you need to get to know this portion of Scripture. This is the new covenant. You need to do a study on covenants. There are different covenants, major promises in the Scripture where God comes along and says, I will fix, I will restore, I will redeem. Covenant with Noah, covenant with David, covenant with Moses, and this is the new covenant. On the first day of the week, we break the bread and take the cup. What did Jesus say? This covenant is, or this bread is the new, or this cup is the new covenant in my body. Every Sunday, you're talking new covenant language. For years, I grew up, and nobody ever connected those to me. Big theme. We can't talk about it here, but it comes from this promise. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse number 31. Um, Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, or the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, right? They failed. They're in captivity. They've crashed their car. I mean, just everything is a mess. God's going to restore them. How's he going to do it? He's going to make a new covenant. Not like the Mosaic. That's the old covenant is the Mosaic covenant. This is a new one. He's going to make it with, who does it say here? The house of Israel and the house of Judah. It doesn't mention the church here. This is a covenant that's going to be with Israel. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. That's Sinai. My covenant, which they broke. They broke that covenant. Even though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, I will write on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall they teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, you better know the Lord, know the Lord, because they're all going to know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. How is this going to happen? How would it come to pass that a whole nation of Israelites would go from sort of doing a bad job of following the Lord to doing a great job of following the Lord, from the smallest to the greatest. It says here, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Now, if you were to go to Ezekiel, where this is mentioned, he says, I'm going to take away the heart of stone and I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. I'm going to pour water on you, right? And I'm going to give you a spirit. The switch from the failure that was seen in Israel to the success that's seen in those that follow Christ is connected specifically with the forgiveness of sins, hint, hint, the cross of Christ, and the coming of the Spirit. Um, Joel promises a day when 
the Spirit will come upon all people, not just the prophets. The young men will um, dream dreams. The, you know, the women will prophesy the old and the young. Uh, when we step into John, right, the Spirit descends upon Jesus. It's a ministry of the, the, the Spirit. Uh, when the disciples go, I'm ending with this slide this morning, so not to worry. Uh, when disciples get ready to go into all the world, Jesus says to them, what? I want you to wait for the promise from the Father, right? What's that promise? If you read the Old Testament, there's all this promise of the Spirit. Wait for the promise of the Father. He's going to empower you to go into all the world, right? And then in Acts chapter 1-8, the Spirit comes and, and, and baptizes everyone. It's a huge theme in Scripture. So when you're in Galatians and you read the verse, how did you receive the Holy Spirit? Don't just rush by it. Oh, I received the Holy Spirit by faith. Moving on. It's a big deal. Whole shift in scenery. And now they're in that age, and now they want to go back, and now they want to keep the law, and they want to, you know, observe certain days. They want to go back to the old system after the whole messianic age has dawned on them. That makes no sense. Who bewitched you? You feel it? Maybe, maybe not. Right? It's there. This is big stuff. We're going to close tonight. We've got to do the rest of the chapter. So uh, let's, let's pray. Father, we ask this morning that um, you help us to not think that we are above being bewitched, that we're too smart, we're too savvy. Uh, Lord, we know that we have many chinks in our own armor. So Lord, we ask that you would help us to stick close to Christ, to walk in the Spirit, to stick close to the body, um, to love one another. We ask you to protect us as we move out in the world and seek to live our lives for your Son, the Lord Jesus. We ask you to protect us as we drive on the roads today. We don't want to take our safety for granted in your, your providential care. Um, and, and we just pray for the believers here as they go home and those that come back tonight. Lord, we just ask that you would help us to um, just to feed on the word, to grow, uh, and to really understand how these things would apply to our lives today. We pray this in Jesus' name.